If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read to Hebrews 5, verse 10. This is the word of God, hear it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. It is a privilege and joy to be with you this morning. John, thank you so much for your kind invitation. And Clay and Shannon, thank you so much for your hospitality that I've enjoyed. It's been good seeing many old friends here today as well. Now, I I chose this passage because the book of Hebrews is a favorite book of mine. I've preached through it four times in different congregations. Uh, Between the third and the fourth time that I preached through the book of Hebrews, I preached through the book of Leviticus. And it, it really opened up the book of Hebrews for me. In fact, I felt like I owed my previous three congregations their money back for, for those sermon series. But I've continued to work on parts of the book because this is a challenging book. And this passage is particularly challenging. And I want you to, I want you to, if you just keep your Bibles open or look at the Pew Bibles on page 1003 in front of you, I want you to see the thesis of the whole passage, the, the proposition, the main argument of the passage is found in verse 15, where the author says, 
we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And I want you to go ahead and start asking yourself, why would the author of Hebrews state the main point of the passage in a double negative? Why not just say, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Why say, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with it? Why say it that way? And I think the answer to the question is, because the author knows that we have a hard time believing it. I think he knows that in our heart of hearts, we struggle to believe that a sinless savior can sympathize with sinful people. We, we get, like it said in chapter five, that sinful priests who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins can sympathize with us as sinners. That makes perfect sense to us. But the idea that Jesus can actually sympathize better with us than sinful priests, that's hard to take in. You know, when you're looking for sympathy, when you've made a D on your test, do you go to the person in the class who made 100? That's not, that's not the way we normally think. And the author of Hebrews knows that. Uh, I, I, my, my working theory now about this book is it's actually a sermon disguised as a letter. It, it really reads like a sermon. I heard a preacher preach his sermon by reciting chapters 9 and 10 from memory one day. And as I was listening to it, I said, my heavens, this is a sermon. Uh, it, it flows like a sermon, and this section flows like a sermon. A, a sermon is essentially an argument. Your, your pastor is not trying to be combative with you. I don't mean an argument in that way, but he's trying to persuade you of something. And in this passage, the author of Hebrews is trying to persuade you of something. And the main thing he's trying to persuade you of is that Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses. And that is very hard for, for us to believe. I, I meet Christians all over the world, wonderful Christians, uh, Christians that have suffered a lot of things for the Lord, who follow the Lord, who serve the Lord, but who still struggle to believe that Jesus can be sympathetic like this. And so that's what us, I want us to concentrate on in this passage. Let me just outline the passage for you. Don't get scared. The outline is a little complex, but I want you to be able to follow the, the flow of the passage. But our main point is just going to be one point, that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. If you look at chapter 4, verse 15, the first sentence, that's the proposition. That's the main point. That's the argument of the whole passage, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us then the basis of that is stated in the next sentence in verse 15. He has been tempted in every respect as we are. And then he throws in this little phrase at the end, yet without sin, and that confuses us. We, we were with him when he said he's been tempted in every respect as we are, but when he reminds us again that he's without sin, we start scratching our head and thinking, okay, so explain again how he's able to sympathize with me since he's without sin. Now, interestingly, 
If you look at the previous verse and the following verse, verses 14 and 16, those verses are applications of the main point. So isn't it interesting? He front loads his applications. A lot of time in preaching, your preacher waits till the very end to do the application of the sermon. In this passage, he front loads the application. Verse 14, he basically says, don't stop believing in Jesus. Keep Hold fast your confession. Don't stop believing in Jesus. In this letter, the author is really concerned that some people in the congregation are are turning their back on Jesus and they're going back to the form of Judaism that they came out of. And he's saying to them, don't turn your back on Jesus. And then in verse 16, he, he says, draw near to the throne of grace. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing, verse 14. Don't stop praying, verse 16. Now, verses one to 10 in chapter five, all of that is explanation for how Jesus can be sympathetic to you. So it's really, verses one to 10 are a long explanation of verse 15, the very first phrase, that you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. And verses one to 10 come into two parts. In verses one to six, he compares Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. In verses seven to 10, he focuses on Jesus' intercession for us and his experience of obedience in suffering in order to show us how he can sympathize with us. And so that's what I want to concentrate on with you for a few minutes this morning. The whole point of the passage is that Jesus is able to sympathize with us. The question is, how? And the author explains it this way. Look, look with me at uh, chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in all things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he points out, and this happens often in the book, that there was something that was um, sort of pre-explained or foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he says, look at verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And that makes perfect sense to us. The the, the point is this, that when God set up the Old Testament sacrificial system, the reason that he gave us human priests with sins like ours is so that they would sympathize with us when they offered sacrifices for our sins. Uh, That makes perfect sense to us. And it's elaborated further. Look at what it says in verse three. Because of this, because he he is a sinner, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his sins as well as for the people. So this makes perfect sense. But then it starts starts you scratching your head again. But remember what he said at the end of verse 15? Jesus was without sin. So how can... I get how a human priest who does, who does sin can sympathize with me in my sinfulness. How can he sympathize with me in my weakness? And what's so interesting in verses one through six is he doesn't fully answer the question. He just, he points at a couple of realities and he asks you to think about them. 
Here's the first reality that he asks you to think about. God, in his kindness and sympathy for us, appointed human priests in the Old Testament with sins like our own in order to be sympathetic with us. Now pause, think about that. How kind of that uh, for God to do? Isn't that amazing that God, God's thinking about our well-being and so he deliberately appoints human priests with sins like our own in order to sympathize with our weaknesses because they're beset with weaknesses like us. So he, he, what he's saying, by the way, is that God, even under the Mosaic Covenant, which he's actually been comparing unfavorably to the New Covenant for most of the book. Remember, the, the big argument of the book of Hebrews is what? It can be summed up in one word, better. Jesus is better. The word better is used 13 times in this little book. And, and what he'll do is he'll compare Jesus to Moses and say what? Jesus is better. He'll, pray, he'll compare Jesus to Aaron and the priests and he'll say, what? Jesus is better. But in this passage, what he says is the very reason that God appointed human Old Testament priests who were sinners like us is so that they could sympathize with us. God was thinking about us when he appointed the priests. But then notice what he goes on to say. God also appointed Jesus. Now he doesn't explain how Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests yet. But he just points out that God appointed Jesus too. And if God appointed Old Testament priests in order that they could sympathize with us, and if the whole argument of the, of the letter so far has been that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests, the implication is somehow Jesus must be better. I don't know how yet, but somehow Jesus must be able to sympathize with me better than Old Testament priests. And that leads him in to verses 7 to 10. And notice what he says there. In the days of his flesh, he, that is Jesus, offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Now, I, I have to think that the author of Hebrews is thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Where, where did Jesus offer up prayers with loud crying and tears? In fact, his tears were as, you know, he sweat as with drops of blood. The tears flowed as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did Jesus pray? Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will but your will be done. I've got to think that the author of Hebrews, in verse 7 especially, is thinking of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, what was the answer to that prayer? The answer to that prayer was no and yes. No, this cup will not pass from you. Yes, my will will be done. Now we're beginning to see how Jesus is able to sympathize with us. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is when we get a no to our prayers. You know, we, we can pray wonderful, good, right things and get a no to our prayers. I, I was in 
the pediatric intensive care unit at Blair Batson Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi many years ago with a wonderful, godly woman. She was a nurse and she was holding her two-year-old boy as he took his last breaths. And she had been pleading with the Lord that her little boy would live. And I, I watched the, the heartbeat get lower and lower and then finally flatline. And she looked up at me after her boy died in her arms and she said, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? And I, I felt like I have no business being in a room with a woman this godly. I, f- I, felt, like, I felt like I was with Job. You know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She had prayed a good prayer, Lord, spare my son. The answer was no. And she responded in faith and in praise. Jesus does the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. No. The only way that my people will be saved is if you go to the cross, if you drink the cup. My will will be done. That's often the great challenge, isn't it, in our temptation? Yielding our will to God. Because in temptation, Satan wants us to think that God's will for us is not good and it would be better if we got our way. We want to pray, not thy will, but my will be done. Jesus prays, not my will, but thy will be done. And really, in every temptation we face, we're tempted to prefer our will over God's will. When the author of Hebrews tells you that Jesus was able to pray, not my will, but your will be done, he's telling you this. Jesus understands the core of your temptation. When, 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 when you're tempted, Jesus can say to you, I get that. I, I understand that. I, I know what it is like to want something other than the providence of God. But I also know what it is to yield my will to God's good and kind providence and to trust him. So I get what you're going through in your temptation. One of, um, one of my church members was a wonderful uh, doctor in the area and he, uh, he, he began to struggle with addictions. And when he came out of those struggles with addictions, he came to me and he said, I want to help other people in the church that are struggling with addiction. And he actually set up a group to help people in our church that were dealing with addictions. And one of the powerful things that he could say to them in the context of the group was, me too. I I understand what it's like to go through what you're going through. Well, here's this interesting reality. Jesus, though he is without sin, because he understands the inner logic of temptation, really in ways that we don't even understand it, because you, you can't understand temptation fully unless you resist it. Sadly, I give in to temptation, which which says to me, I don't fully understand the inner logic of temptation. Jesus does, and so he can say, me too. I've, I've been tempted too. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean that Jesus has been tempted in the exact way that every single one of us is. For instance, you know, I am sure that there are ways that women who are pregnant are tempted 
Jesus was never a pregnant woman, and so he was not tempted in those ways. But the inner logic of temptation is the same for all of us. It's us wanting to put our will over God's will. And Jesus understood that, and he was able to pray the prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes on to say, look at the next phrase, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So the author of Hebrews points out that Jesus' life was uniquely a life of suffering. And and by the way, not just at the cross. All the way from the beginning, Jesus endured deprivation and suffering on our behalf. That's emphasized in the Gospels. He he was a refugee. He He had to flee from persecution even when he was a child. He had to leave, uh, he had to live as a, as, a, as a resident alien in another land. Uh, he lived in relative poverty. Uh, he uh, lived in uh, an obscurity that does not befit the one, what did we just say in the confession of faith today? That he was, he's our king. Well, I mean, he didn't deserve to live in relative obscurity. He, he bore suffering his whole life and that uniquely equips him to sympathize with us. You ever thought about that? If Jesus had not been a suffering savior, he would not have been able to sympathize with all his people because many of his people endure tremendous suffering. And so in all of these ways, the author of Hebrews is explaining to you that Jesus gets you. He he understands what it's like to live in your flesh. He understands what it's like to be tempted. And he does not despise you because of it. When, When Jesus finds you struggling with sin in temptation, he does not go, I cannot believe that I am shocked. No, he came here for sinners. Remember, he said that to his disciples. I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. God sent him because he knew that we were struggling with these things. Jesus is not shocked by these things. He came for them. And because he lived in our flesh and because he experienced temptation, even though he resisted it, whereas so often we give in, He understands what it is to be tempted and tried. And he's sympathetic with us. He's not looking at us with disdain and disgust. He's sympathetic with us because he came for us. When I I was at Furman University, which is a small liberal arts college in South Carolina, one of my jobs with the Furman Greenville Fine Arts Series was to accompany the musician from the airport and then take the musician back to the airport after the concert. And we would bring in famous singers, opera singers, and pianists and other instrumentalists to do a concert series every year. One uh, time we invited an internationally renowned pianist who gave an amazing concert and it was my job to take him back to the airport. And so I thought, okay, he would enjoy listening to some classical music. And so in my car, I turned on FM radio, and I'll explain what FM radio is to you afterwards at the door. And uh, turned on the classical music station, and sure enough, they were playing a piano concerto. And he got in the car, and 30 seconds into the drive, he said, <clears throat> could you please turn that off? Okay, click. And I couldn't resist why? And he said, because all I can hear are the mistakes. 
Now, there were several bubbles in my mind, you know, uh, that I didn't speak. One was, that's kind of a miserable way to live life. You know, I don't care how good you are as a musician, that's kind of a miserable way to live life. But I, I have musician friends who are kind of perfectionists and they don't like to hear their own stuff because all they hear is what they didn't do right. Um, but the other thought that came to me is, thank God that is not how Jesus thinks about us. He, 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 his, his attitude to us is not, all I can see is what you do wrong. He is a sympathetic savior who understands what it is like to be tempted. And therefore, he is the one that you want to run to in your temptation. But keep believing in him. You need a sympathetic savior like that. And keep going to him at the throne of grace. Remember that he, that sympathetic savior, ever lives to intercede. Even now he's interceding on your behalf. The great point that the author of Hebrews wants to press home to us today is that we have a sympathetic savior that we can trust. We can trust him with the ruin of our lives, with the temptations of our hearts, with the struggles with sin, and he will not despise us. He came for us and he's sympathetic and patient with us and he will hear our cries. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Savior that you appointed for us, that though he is without sin and never, ever, ever violated your will, yet he is sympathetic to us as we struggle with our sin. Help us to believe him and to always cling to him and to go to him in prayer in time of need, knowing that our sympathetic Savior will listen to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.